Welcome to another edition of Talking Spirituality, a Glastonbury Abbey podcast in which we look at some of the spiritual topics that intersect with this sacred place. I'm Nick Phillips, and today I'll be joined by Professor Roberta Gilchrist. Roberta has been a trustee of the Abbey for around 12 years and is also Professor of Archaeology and Research Dean at Reading University. Roberta knows the Abbey archive extremely well after completing a reappraisal of the Abbey's 20th century archaeology digs, the findings of which had never been fully published until 2015, when Professor Gilchrist and Dr Cheryl Green released the monograph Glastonbury Abbey Archaeological Investigations 1904-1979. to The re-examination not only improved our understanding and dating of the evidence, but has influenced the Abbey's interpretation in the form of a new guidebook and digital materials. For her extensive work at the Abbey, as well as elsewhere, Roberta was named Archaeologist of the Year in 2016 and continues to put her tremendous knowledge to use here today to keep evolving our understanding of the past. You may wonder how this all relates to spirituality. In 2020, Roberta published another book entitled Sacred Heritage that deals with the relationship between medieval archaeology and spiritual belief. The field of archaeology has traditionally taken a largely secular approach and ignored the spiritual dimension, the beliefs of both medieval and modern people. Professor Gilchrist asserts that examining spirituality through archaeology can help to improve our understanding of medieval sites like Glastonbury Abbey and help us see how medieval spiritual beliefs influence contemporary social issues like identity and diversity, something that has been largely overlooked before now. Welcome, Roberta. Thank you for being here. And I hope that introduction was comprehensive enough. Thank you, Nick. That was very kind and it's good to be here. So let's talk first about what sacred heritage is and uh, define what we're talking about. We've seen a shift in focus over the last few decades in archaeology from only the ancient and monumental being seen as of importance to the inclusion of what is known as intangible cultural heritage, uh, things like craft songs, dance, things that are harder to see in the archaeological record. Um, But what about sacred or spiritual heritage? What does that include and what can examining it tell us? Well, as you say, there's been a real shift in archaeology and heritage management towards what's termed the living heritage approach. This is quite different from that emphasis on the monumental and that it explores the relationship of heritage to living people and how they interpret and also engage emotionally with their material world. Explicit discussions of spiritual heritage, I think, though, are still relatively rare, even within this more recent, more humanistic framework. But you mentioned intangible heritage, and I think that's when spirituality really comes to the fore. Mm. But I just want to pause and talk a little bit more about this distinction between tangible and intangible heritage. They they may be, you know, fairly new concepts. Mm. So what do they actually mean in terms of of the sacred? So if we think about tangible heritage, first of all, the, the really important qualifier is that it's everything that is material, it's physical. So that would be buildings or monuments such as a church, cathedral, a holy well a stoned cross, say, in the landscape, or a ruined abbey, but also a wider sacred landscape that might be associated with those monuments or with historical or mythical Mm. figures. Whereas intangible heritage is the opposite of that. It's non-material. So it's concerned with the world of beliefs and practices. 
So we might think of origin myths, sacred stories, or, or performances even, rituals and liturgies associated with a set of beliefs. Uh, although we, we talk about them as two different things, there is an integral connection between the tangible and the intangible. And some European heritage bodies are now including intangible heritage in their statutory protection of heritage for future generations, uh, including Scotland uh, has just adopted that. Hmm. But it's not been adopted in England yet. Yeah. Um, something you mentioned in the book um, is uh, sacred sites are physical manifestations of religious myths and mystical beliefs, providing a material place to reflect on the immaterial. But whilst um, many heritage sites like abbeys, shrines, cathedrals, temples, um, they're regarded as sacred sites, the focus in archeology span hasn't often been on what they meant and still mean to people. So if you ask um, visitors today what makes the Abbey at Glastonbury um, sacred, you might get a dozen different answers. Um, for some, it's the, the belief of it being the first Christian church on English soil. Um, for some, it's the association with particular saints or figures like Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, for some, it's a belief in the inherent um, earth energy of the place. And for others, it's a feeling of the accumulated centuries of prayer and devotion that's taken place. Um, how much progress do you think has been made in this country in particular to recognising the importance of the intangible? Well, I think, first of all, I want to go back and, and comment on all those, those different meanings of Glastonbury that mm. you talked about. I think one of the, the key characteristics of sacred sites is that they do hold these multiple meanings mm. and can be valued differently by respective groups of people. And, and Glastonbury is the, the kind of uh, superlative example of that yeah. um, with different meanings to all a range of spiritual seekers and stakeholders. But there are other medieval religious sites that are also regarded as living sacred landscapes where you get similar things like say Iona and Lindisfarne abbeys which are both you know important contemporary pilgrimage sites so it's not just Glastonbury no. but this this kind of characteristic of multiple meanings is important I think one of the 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 issues that you're touching on is that um, you know the in the intangible I'm not sure that the majority of people who come to a, a site like Glastonbury Abbey would understand that I, I think mm. they, they would probably still see a ruined medieval abbey as a secular site because it's a heritage site or even a, an, a, an attraction. Mm. Um, and they, they might recognize the importance of preserving its, its tangible heritage, its archaeology yeah. for future generations, but they probably would not understand that its sacred myths and stories constitute heritage in themselves, intangible yeah. heritage that's important to interpreting and experiencing the site. So unless they're already motivated because they are themselves spiritual seekers, they probably come here um, because they're interested in seeing a medieval site. Um, and it's very different from, say, um, a site which is still in use, like a, a cathedral um, or, mm. or even a, a, a pilgrimage site. But, you know, this may start to change. And I think that, you know, one of the things that, that COVID has taught us that people are much more interested in spiritual well-being, yeah. the importance of meditative spaces, and maybe these sacred heritage sites will start to be valued more for their imminence, their sense of the numinous, alongside their history and, and especially the connection to nature. So we might start to see a change in that. But I think 
at the moment, perhaps there isn't a, a broad understanding of intangible heritage. Mm. I think the, this um, sort of shift towards um, thinking about spiritual well-being, as you, you mentioned, um, since reading your work and other studies on pilgrimage, um, I've kind of noticed the some similarities with certain medieval outlooks. Um, so when talking about intangible heritage, uh, one important factor um, is continuity, which I think is um, a powerful idea. And it's been used um, both by the medieval church and a variety of modern beliefs. So like the monks at Glastonbury and many other medieval abbeys and cathedrals were keen to claim unbroken worship from an early era as possible. And I think today that's still like a really important factor to people when they think about place. Um, and I've noticed this as well in, in other um, claims, for example, about modern witchcraft being based on authentic traditions handed down through the centuries or goddess worship surviving in secret through Gnostic sects or in symbols um, representing hidden knowledge um, that only monks were privy to. Um, so people really like these ideas um, about unbroken tradition and seeing it as more authentic. Um, so this idea of continuity al almost becomes part of the myth of these places in itself. Um, would you agree? Yes, I think you're 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 right. Um, that that idea of continuity is is another kind of key characteristic of sacred heritage sites, alongside that idea of multiple meanings. Um, and I think that we we seem to value the concept of authenticity, mm -hmm. the idea that an institution's ancient origins and its continuous existence can justify or authenticate the meaning and value of its beliefs. So it kind of you know gives you that proof, if you like. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's important to understand that that principle doesn't apply exclusively to religious or spiritual beliefs. Um, this is something that archaeologists have, have grappled with quite a lot because many different ideologies have used archaeology and the idea of the deep past to justify themselves. And that includes far-right political mm. ideologies in, in the 20th century and also mm. today. Yeah. yeah. So I think, you know, there's a really important distinction to be drawn here between the archaeological evidence which might show the sustained use of a sacred location versus the idea that the spiritual beliefs remained constant over time. Mm. And again, Glastonbury does demonstrate this, where we've seen tremendous change over the last century in what people believe in those religious narratives and how they use and experience the Glastonbury landscape. So we can see continuity of place, but the spiritual beliefs are dynamic, and constantly changing in response to contemporary concerns. Hmm. Yeah, and um, you talk as well in the book about the idea of continuity, um, how it also affects how people treat places. Uh, so like a cathedral being seen as living heritage, an example of the continuity of religion, despite um, some of them having undergone quite significant periods of upheaval and reformation and discontinuity whereas a ruined abbey like Glastonbury as you say it's like treated like a relic like a, a moment in time and there seems to be a, a variety of opinions on whether it should be treated today like identically to a cathedral or not it's quite a tricky question isn't it it is challenging um, and I think it, it's particularly challenging for the custodians of these sites yeah um 
I think the crucial point here is whether living people today regard a site as sacred, because we are talking about this concept of living heritage and, and respecting um, people's ability to be involved in heritage debates. Mm. Um, now, you know, today, many former religious buildings are deconcentrate, deconsecrated. Uh, they're turned into houses, art centers, restaurants, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> now, are, are these still sites of sacred heritage? Mm. In some cases, they may be regarded as such, or they may be perceived as that by some people if they have some sort of family connection with them, for example. Yeah. But another important factor here that, that comes up quite a lot when these sites are discussed is whether these former religious sites have within them buried human remains, mm. you know, whether yeah. they were places of burial and commemoration. And if they are, should they therefore be regarded as sacrosanct places mm. of the dead, so in, in themselves sacred places? And I think there is a, a, a kind of crucial determinant there. And it does seem to concern people whether or not they are um, spiritual themselves or not. Yeah. They still have a concern about respecting places of the dead. And sometimes, I suppose, whether they're a Christian burial or an ancient burial well, that, that may matter, but often people, you know, do feel that it's important to, res to respect, yeah. Yeah, to respect yeah. the dead and what the dead wanted in terms of <clears throat> their own places of rest. So mm. if we look at even within heritage management, even within the secular state model of heritage management, human remains are given special treatment and regarded mm. as a distinct ethical issue and area of protection. Um, but often when people look at a ruined abbey, they don't remember that it's a place of burial, that it's a it's mm. a place of the dead. And that was one of the key roles of the medieval abbey, wasn't it? It was yeah. commemorating that community of, of the dead, praying for them and, and in a sense, keeping them alive uh, spiritually. But a ruined abbey is generally managed as a completely sterile monument, as a, a piece of the past frozen in time, rather than a living spiritual landscape. And I, I think Glastonbury is, is an exception here because there are so many different constituencies of living people today who regard the site as sacred and they voice that opinion and belief. Mm. Yeah, they do. Um, and, and how they act is, it does vary as well. This kind of um, idea that we, we know, we, we see it regularly that people step over barriers into the altar space. Um, and you wouldn't, you wouldn't um, necessarily see that happening in a cathedral. Um, you're less likely to, but um people do this and either they don't recognize that it's that this kind of demarcated space it has the same meaning as it would in a cathedral or they don't feel obliged to be as respectful for some reason or um, perhaps they are experiencing the sacred in, in an alternate way um, more to do with the kind of earth energy school of beliefs um, what do you think about about that <laughs> Well, it'll vary, won't it? I mean, we can't yeah. kind of um, group everybody into a, no. a, a single category. Um, but, you know, it's an interesting one because Glastonbury is largely an open air site. Yeah. You know, whereas when people come into a, a cathedral, even if they're not Christians, they recognize that it's, it's a sacred yeah, it's building. It's obvious, yeah. Yeah, it's a sacred building. It has a particular acoustic 
which you regard as being a sacred place mm. and a fam familiar etiquette for how to behave. And you know, yeah. you know, if you're you're in, um, say, Italy or Spain or whatever, there'll even be a dress code outside for tourists. So, yeah. You know, yeah. Please be careful what you wear. This is a place of worship. And of course, we don't have anything like that at, at, at Glastonbury because it's an open air site, and probably the majority of people who come here think that Glastonbury Abbey is a heritage site. So they think of it as the equivalent, say, to a medieval castle, rather yeah. than understanding yeah, it's yeah. a living spiritual landscape that rem remains important to mm. people's beliefs today. So it may not be intentionally disrespectful, mm. but in terms of, of you know, that, that cultural etiquette and understanding, it's a long way from a cathedral. Yeah, yeah. Um, so besides the intangible things, um, you gave, gave some examples of things that are, are tangible, but ha they've been overlooked in archaeology in terms of their significance. So um, you mentioned in the book, there's evidence of deposits in medieval churches that were considered to represent superstitions, but they were often left unreported, which I find quite fascinating. Um, things like animal burials in unusual positions, um, a cow with a koi in its mouth, or chickens in upturned pots, um, which might indicate a ritual reason for being there. Um, but because these were classified at the time as, as pagan or folk belief, they seem to have been swept under the carpet. Um, do you think this happened a lot in the archaeology of the past century? Uh, yes. Uh, past, and then past decades, not even past century, yeah. and, and especially in relation to the medieval period, because it was assumed that Christians in particular wouldn't engage in these. Yeah, rituals. you just don't hear about this kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And I think that it was it's been OK to study these things if they're found in the Bronze Age or the Iron Age or whatever, mm. but but not academically acceptable to study them in a Christian context, even though, you know, you mentioned the cows and the chick chickens, these were buried inside parish churches. So they're clearly de deposits made by, by Christians and they yeah. had um, a, a particular meaning really. But I think people dismiss this as superstition rather than a meaningful religious belief. And when I first started to work on these things and, and on the, the topic of, of magic um, in particular, um, some of my kind of older colleagues in the discipline did say, why are you working on this? Mm. You know, it, you know you, you, you've done some good work. Why are you going down this avenue mm. of, of, you know, studying superstition? And so even, yeah. even within the profession, they didn't understand that this was archaeological evidence for people's beliefs in, in yeah. the past. And it's quite surprising that because there really has only been a sea change in understanding, and I'd say the last, the last decade even though folklorists were recording and studying these things well over a hundred years ago and yeah. writing about them. And yeah, there was them. lots of, lots of records going back to sort of the Victorian age. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's just not the scene as the done thing in archaeology. It is now. And yeah. so um, in, in, in recent years, you know, especially um, early career, archaeologists have really you know taken this this topic on board and have started to publish on this um, and so it's really captured mm. their imaginations because the idea that there are um, beliefs that were not historically documented and which may not have been kind of mainstream institutional beliefs but they're mm. private beliefs that these yeah. are the kind of personal um, emotional expressions of ordinary people that really fires their ima um, imaginations and, and that's what has interested me about it.
Yeah, it's really exciting, actually. Um, and you mentioned about the archaeology of magic as well. And see, I would think, like, you think of that and you think Roman cursed tablets or Egyptian amulets, but you, do, you don't think about medieval Christianity in terms of them using magic. People would think, of course, monks weren't using magic. But um, as you've shown, uh, they did employ uh, magic of nature in healing charms, and they kept translations of magical texts. And it all seems to have been like rationalized by differentiating what they saw as magic coming from God and that w which was demonic. Um, so do you think there's a lot more to uncover on this subject? Well, I hope so, because it's one of my favorite topics. Um, but I, th I think that we will uncover a lot more because there's only recently an awareness of it. So people are becoming more alert to the possibility and to the evidence for it. Mm. And, you know, this is this is um, something which um, in medieval history, um, people have studied for uh, the last 20 years. But within archaeology, we're still really catching up on that. <laughs> And one of the issues is that, you know, we only work largely from the material evidence. And that, yeah. of course, yeah. means that, you know, that seldom comes with written explanations. So mm -hmm. it's really, really challenging to, to tackle questions around magic and what it, what it meant. I mean, what were people trying to do through yeah. these kind of rituals? And who were they appealing to? What supernatural agency were they appealing to? So from an archaeological point of view, we need to focus on the context of the find itself. And that right. means the, um, the spatial setting, the chronological context. And, and of course, we can also draw on wider historical evidence of how medieval people used mm. magic. And you, Without you kind of the temptation to embellish, like with our ideas on what, what, they, what yeah. they would have been doing we, with, with a sort of modern lens. That, that is that is always a problem yeah. in archaeology because yeah. you are uh, you don't have the the, the the voices or motivations of people generally written mm -hmm. down normally we're, we're looking at um, people who whose actions were not recorded in texts and they're mm, everyday people yeah. yeah yeah but but as you say monks also employed magic so not just everyday people it wasn't mm. always like a kind of alternative or resistant kind of culture mm. it was also mainstream elite culture and monks employed magic in all sorts of ways from making medicine to conjuring spirits to help them find lost objects <laughs> you know and and that was considered acceptable yeah <laughs> as, you, as you said as long as the agency behind the magic was perceived to be divine rather than demonic and that was the critical issue hmm. and i think there's um commonalities with modern practice as well um so um in the book you mentioned about medieval medieval people um, would have believed in the occult properties of substances like quartz and jet and amber um, because you find them in ritual deposits um, but here at the abbey today we, we quite often find people will leave pieces of quartz or, or you know semi-precious stones in auspicious spots and um and votives as well um jewelry and ribbons left behind um and that's something that we have evidence was happening in the mid in the middle ages as well people leaving votives related to healing um so do you think this desire to leave an offering at a sacred site is something that um, shows continuity of practice in in other words people sort of copying each other and um or is it something that's just inherent in human behavior 
Well, I think it's a bit of both, really, because, um, you know, these sort of traditions happen all through history and right across the world, which suggests yeah. it's a bit in, inherent. Yeah. But, there, but there are also regional traditions. You know, the, this kind of interest in things like amber and quartz is, is right across um, northern Europe. And, you know, is that because it's a shared tradition or is it that we're inherently drawn to particular materials shiny things. Natural, <laughs> natural materials well not just shiny things but tactile things you know mm. amber and quartz when I mean, amber um you know if you rub amber um it, it actually releases a sweet scent mm. um it also then um becomes static so that things will stick to it so you know to a medieval person that appears to be a, a miraculous material doesn't it yeah yeah and then something like quartz, you've got the reflection of light, um, the association with natural elements such as sea and sky. I mean, I think that's still why people are, are interested in that mm. as a material or even that, you know, it looks like ice. It looks, you know, they're all. Mm. So th these are just interesting natural materials and they, they behave in a particular way themselves. They seem to have their own agency, whether it's reflecting light or, you know, becoming static or releasing a smell. And then there are also the sort of long-standing cultural tr traditions that develop around certain materials that become, you know, passed down orally or widely known. So that's how they become part of a particular regional tradition. Um, and here, if you think of jet, for example, you know, the sort of jet mm. black thing that that and, you know, from Whitby. Um, there was this Victorian obsession with jet um, and that's remained associated with mourning. And we, we tend to think of it as a mourning material. So it's be, it may have started because of an interest in the material itself, but it becomes a cultural association. Mm -hmm. So I, I think the materials themselves are important, but I do agree, agree that there seems to be a sort of human instinct to leave yeah. offerings or collect souvenirs from important locales because that happens in pilgrimage uh, practices right across the world mm. and um, another thing you mentioned is the pilgrim pilgrim badges in the archaeological record um the archaeologists often sort of term these souvenirs but um that kind of puts you in mind of something you buy in a gift shop but they'd have a lot of a greater significance than that wouldn't they yeah i think whoever termed them pilgrim souvenirs didn't do us any favors no. uh, because it, it, it does immediately trivialize them in a sense yeah. um, and I think it's important to understand that these were spiritual objects and um, some people now call them pilgrim signs um, as a sort of okay. and you know taking in all the different types of um, pilgrimage objects that would have been collected so in the in the medieval period there were sort of two primary types that the, the first of all the, the metal badges yep. that uh, bore an image of the saint and then secondly, these ampullae, um, tiny bottles containing holy water associated with a shrine. Now, these were absolutely cheap, ubiquitous objects. They mm. were incredibly cheaply produced. They were sold at shrines. You know, anybody could afford these things. So they're, um, in a sense, you think, oh, they're just sort of trinkets. They're just sort of cheap metal alloy objects. Yeah. But on the other hand, they weren't. Okay. They start off as that. Mm -hmm. But then they become sacred objects themselves through a process of sacralization and that basically through the close physical contact or proximity to the relics of saints. So if I could just sort of explain that for a moment, I'm going to mention a, 
a historian called Richard Finnecane, who was writing, gosh, I think in the 1970s or 80s, I remember reading his book about um, pilgrimage and saints and shrines. And he talked about the relics of saints having what he termed a holy radioactivity. <laughs> is that, you know, and, and so we understand that, the idea that, that radioactivity is something that can be transferred yeah, and it's held in objects, yeah, clings yeah. to the object, right? So if we think about the saints as having a kind of holy radioactivity, when even these cheap objects, these trinkets, come into contact with them or their relics or their shrines, they carry that power of the saint, you know, in the object. So those pilgrim signs were much more than souvenirs. They were taken home as receptacles that contained the continued protection and sacred healing of the saint. Mm-hmm. Um, returning to what we were discussing about what makes a sacred site, uh, a sense of place is an important term. And um, in your your chapter about uh, Glastonbury, you, you say that a sense of place develops through engagement with a landscape over time, and that the abbey was sacralized by centuries of monastic memory and tradition. Um, prime example being the the Lady Chapel. It's it's kind of seen as a, a physical repository of the story of the abbey's beginning, uh, built supposedly to preserve the location of the original wooden church that burned down. Um, And even after the dissolution of the monasteries, it it survived largely intact. Do you think that was uh, potentially because of its significance to Protestantism? Yeah, it's a a really interesting question, because when you come to Glastonbury, you have this largely ruined site Mm. before you but the Lady Chapel standing there almost intact. And so, you know, the question is, why did that happen? And because it certainly hasn't been reconstructed. It, it is absolutely in its, uh, its, its medieval condition. So I think it's a really good example that you've, you've picked up of this kind of the idea of the enduring significance of place. But at the same time, it shows how spiritual responses to place can change dramatically. So yeah. for the for the medieval monks and pilgrims, as you said, it represents the the old church associated with Joseph of Arimathea, but also the cult of the Blessed Virgin. And um, so these are th- thoroughly Catholic messages. Yeah, yeah. And then following the dissolution of the Abbey in, in 1539, the, the, the Protestant state soon recognizes the value of Glastonbury, if you like, the sort of propaganda value of Glastonbury as a Christian symbol, because the, the Arimathea legend. If you take that at face value, it means that Glastonbury was a a sacred place before the Catholic Church. It predates the Catholic Church and certainly before the Catholic Church comes to Britain. And and that takes on new importance after the Reformation because it has the the importance to justify and validate the break with Rome. It means that Britain, England Mm. already had its own church. So... This this becomes really important politically, and um, Elizabeth I uh, claimed Joseph of Arimathea as, quote, the first preacher of the word of God in our realm. So Glastonbury becomes a really important place, and what was formerly the Lady Chapel became known as St. Joseph's Chapel, and it became a popular destination for Protestant pilgrims, because all those Catholic shrines had been swept away, but you could still go to Glastonbury on pilgrimage, 
as a good Protestant. <laughs> you know? So that means that, you know, this Protestant appropriation of a Catholic symbol, I think is very likely to explain mm. yeah. why the Lady Chapel survives. Yeah. Um, and it, it seems that wherever there is discontinuity, there's potential for, for reinterpretation and for modern myths to come in and, and re-sacralize places in different ways for new generations and more diverse interest groups than they originally were used by, um, which takes us into multivocality, um, which besides authenticity and sense of place is important when examining um, how competing belief systems experience a sacred site and the relationship between archaeology and the legend. Um, can you explain a bit about what multivocality sets out to achieve? Yeah, I mean, we if we take it at its face value, multivocality just means many voices. Yeah. You yeah. Know? So it's a kind of fancy term for something that's quite simple, many voices. <laughs> um, and it, it's part of this living heritage perspective that I mentioned earlier. And it basically acknowledges the legitimacy of different living voices to participate in heritage debates. So it challenges the idea that there's a single right answer or an authoritative narrative of the past. So in, in, in previous decades, there would be like an authorized heritage mm -hmm. discourse. Yeah. So the, the, the expert knows best, yeah. the historian or the archeologist knows best. Um, Multivocality um, acknowledges that other people have views and understandings and, and insights and that those should be respected and, and brought to bear in interpretation and management of, of sacred heritage sites. So this, this concept of multivocality, I think is really important when it comes to a sacred heritage site um, like Glastonbury, which in some ways is a contested site with various interest groups believing different versions of the Abbey's history. And we have to, and acknowledge mm. and understand that that there are different perspectives yeah an example of that being when we were developing the the recent guidebook and um, how we came to represent two different imaginings of the old wooden church um i remember that well um can you tell us a bit about what happened there yeah that that's a a, a really perfect illustration of multivocality and how it can be tricky for experts like archaeologists to navigate um it was an interesting experience yeah. <laughs> for, for me that because i had to think about how i interpret things and how i kind of got into the position um of of not really thinking through what was going to happen next so the background to that is you know we as as archaeologists draw on established reserves of academic knowledge and protocols for interpreting evidence you know we have our ways of doing things and we sometimes forget that there may be different traditions of interpretation so we need to be sensitive when we mm. encounter them and in this particular case that you're mentioning when we were we were um looking at the the old church uh for the guidebook and other things we were working on a series of digital reconstructions of glastonbury abbey in collaboration with the Center for Christianity and Culture at the University of York and funded by the Arts and Human Humanities Research Council. So there were a whole series of different digital yeah, reconstructions, yeah, yeah. but we decided to include a reconstruction of the old church um, because it's a key part of the Abbey yeah. story. Now, the old church is believed to date to the sixth century. There's, there's no surviving archaeological evidence. There's no surviving 
uh, buildings of that date that we can compare it to. So we had to look around for what evidence we could draw on. Um, so first of all, there's a, a 12th century abbey seal, which um, shows a building and it's said to depict the old church. Mm. And that sort of shows a rectangular building, not unlike the current Lady Chapel. Um, and then we have the rectangular ground plan of the Lady Chapel itself, which was said to to replicate that of the old church. Yeah, and it yeah. was, you know, built in 1186, just and you know, consecrated in 1186. Sorry, just two years after the the fire uh, destroyed the old church in 1184. And then we we could kind of look at what archaeologists had learned by excavating other Anglo-Saxon um, churches, other mm -hmm. Anglo-Saxon settlements, so we could draw on our knowledge of the, the building techniques used by the Anglo-Saxons. So we, you know, brought all of that knowledge together mm -hmm. and we put together a reconstruction, which we thought, well, this is the best we can do. Uh, yeah, a to, rectangular to, yeah, church. Yeah, yeah, rectangular church uh, in a very vernacular um, style. Um, and then before we launched our new reconstruction to the public, we thought, okay, well, we'll trial them at a workshop involving kind of representatives of uh, diverse faith groups locally. So we had Anglican, Catholic, Quaker, Buddhist, New Avalonian representatives, and they loved all mm. of the other re reconstructions. But when we showed them the old church, they were crestfallen, <laughs> disappointed. <laughs> yeah. and, and, you know, I was shocked by that. I think you were. I don't yeah. think we, we had expected this. And it turned out that they had expected to see a round building, whereas we'd shown a rectangular building. And that's because Frederick Bly Bond, an important local figure, had shown his reconstruction of the old church in, in 1939 um, as a round building mm. he he'd shown it as essentially an iron age building almost like an iron age hut in and he'd been influenced by the excavations of the glastonbury lake villages whereas we had been influenced by what archaeologists know about anglo-saxon buildings and this may sound like a really kind of minor and trivial point but it's actually quite an important point because mm. it was a key issue of belief for these people yeah because many people see the old church as essentially celtic and yeah. therefore, you know, in the form of an Iron Age building, whereas we'd shown it as an Anglo-Saxon version. So, you know, the idea of the old church as being Celtic is a really important spiritual belief at, at Glastonbury. So, mm -hmm. you know, if we res respect the idea, the concept of multivocality, then, then we, we have to be sensitive to that. So in the end, we decided to show both images yeah. in, the, in the Abbey Guidebook and also on the website. So we've got the image the reconstruction that we did based on the kind of conventional archaeological and historical knowledge and we've got the reconstruction that Bly Bond did in 1939 connecting mm. it to the tradition of uh, the Glastonbury Lake villages so we, yeah. we've, we've got both and I think that's the compromise that you can do as a and as an archaeologist, as an expert in a certain thing, you can say, we, we will show both of these things. And then people can make their own decisions yeah. about what they, being told. what they believe. Yeah. Yes, that's right. So they can yeah. select their own version. Yeah, it's clear that that um, particular painting had obviously sort of penetrated the consciousness of a lot of people. Like it's yeah. been very well, um, you know, it's been seen throughout the last century for, by people interested in Glastonbury it's just kind of it's there in their mind it was a round church because I've seen this picture yes yeah. and and I don't think we had appreciated that mm. it was almost like a subliminal message yeah it, it had it had been published in so many different 
alternative narratives of, yeah. of Glastonbury, that it became the accepted narrative. Yeah, yeah. Um, in terms of spirituality, do you think being able to discover more about the range of beliefs and practices of the past is going to help people to be more tolerant of each other in the present day at sites like Glastonbury? Well, I think I'll be an optimist here. <laughs> it can only be a, a, a personal view. Um, in my opinion, I think there's, a, there's really a, a growing desire to know more about spiritual beliefs in the past. Um, you know, and I think people are sometimes surprised that archaeology can reveal diverse and multivocal mm. perspectives, that it's, you know, not just a single version of the past. But this is one of the main reasons why I became an archaeologist, because archaeology can be used to open up new ideas and, and attitudes. And just as there are many different beliefs today, there was diversity in the past. And I think this is a powerful message for those who have open minds, it makes a compelling argument for tolerance. Yeah. And also, um, if people see archaeology being more um, open-minded and they will engage with it more, hopefully, as well. Yeah, it, it's, it, it's not just giving them a single authorised version yeah. of the past. It's challenging them to think differently. And that's yeah. that's what archaeology, what good archaeology <laughs> should should do. Yeah. Okay. Well, this has been really interesting. Um, that's all we've got time for today. So um, thank you very much, Roberta. Um, thank you, Nick. And um, thank you, everyone, for listening. And uh, we hope you'll join us again for the next Talking Spirituality podcast. This has been a Glastonbury Abbey podcast. Glastonbury Abbey is an independent charity. You can support us by visiting the Abbey, becoming a member or donating via our website, glastonburyabbey.com. Mm -hmm.